You know, I like butter, but I don't like butter mixed with anything else except popcorn. I don't like butter pretzels, butter but beer, bagel butter with scotch. Butter? A what? Bagel with butter? Well, when I say mixed, I mean like intertwined, like created with, you know, uh, uh, spliced on some DNA level, cooked <laughs> with. I well, well, maybe not cooked with. But. Yeah, I was gonna say. I was like, I'm waiting to see where this explanation goes. I think butter makes all things better. No, I like. Well, I, I guess that's okay. I don't like it when they say this is butter pretzels. I don't like butter pretzels or butter scotch or butter, like you said, but butter butter beer. I, I don't think it's literally beer with butter. In no, it, yeah. Nor nor is butter scotch scotch with butter in it. I, I mean, I, I don't know the recipes for these things, but I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, if you took a thing of scotch and put some butter in it, you would not have butterscotch. Really? Oh, I guess I've been doing it wrong all these. I've got to look this up and see how many people actually tried doing that, as well as butterbeer. Besides Bill? <laughs> butter Bill. Who, right now, if we weren't on Skype, you'd see him like sticking, taking a stick of butter and trying to mash it into his beer. <laughs> Maybe they're the same people that drilled a hole in their iPhone. Oh, God, that is, on one hand, uh, it's hilarious that that's people have actually believed that. On the other hand, it's frightening how many people actually believe that and tried it. <laughs> it's like, wow. Never, ever underestimate the stupid stupidity of people. Yeah, seriously. Ooh, ooh, that Mountain Dew is room temperature. Needs now, to be hot. need to heat it up. Got to put it in a microwave. (laughs) Need to boil that stuff. Put some melted butter in it, too, while I'm at it. (laughs) How are you still alive? Back to the bin. Hello and welcome to this special Two True Freaks slash News As edition of Back to the Bins. I am Matt Hunsworth and tonight joining me are the usual host of Back to the Bins featured on the Two True Freaks internet radio network and they are Spa... <laughs> wow. Good start, Matt. Paul Spatero. Hey, I do go by Spall occasionally. <laughs> Scott H.G. Wells Gardner. Hello. If you didn't see that coming. And <laughs> is he Quicksilver? Huh? No, I meant my HG uh, Wells joke one. Oh, I, I know what you uh, oh. Okay. And of course, Dr. Ruth Robinson. What? <laughs> I'm sorry, Dr. Bill <laughs> Robinson. I do that all the time. I apologize. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is a special episode and part of our ongoing Halloween celebration at NewsAs.com and a big part of our War of the Worlds week. We are going to be talking about the 1998 DC comic one-shot Superman War of the Worlds. Now, when it comes to comic books, I do enjoy comic books. I read them from time to time, but I am in no way, shape, or form a comic book expert, historian, or any kind of source of knowledge on the subject. And that neither, is why... That's okay. Neither are we. <laughs> well, you just <laughs> blew fun. my last sentence, which was, this is why I brought these guys on. But it, let's say at least you pass for it closer than I do. We're self-proclaimed experts. Well, there you go. Well, we I, have no real expertise, but we do have egos. <laughs> right. Well, I guess that fits with my opening statement. I say I don't, I don't claim to be, but you do claim to be. So I guess that all works. 
So we invited one of the, we'll some of the it does. foremost experts on comic books. Unfortunately, none of them showed up. <laughs> All of them have listened to news as and said, that is a bad idea for me to appear on. <laughs> well, this, this is at least for me, this is my Neo Zaz premiere. Um, yeah. And bills as well. I believe um, um, I'm technically, I don't know. Didn't I send in a voicemail as Arnold? Oh, true. Te- true. You have technically he was stalking you while you were recording. One of <laughs> <laughs> I remember breathing heavily behind you once in a recording. She didn't I- see me. I know Scott did an episode of best of fives with me for King Kong Damn straight. Yep. And I do remember saying he was his voice would appear on an episode of Stars and Character, although that recording never made it. So that was kind of a uh, big uh, tease. Mm-hmm. That's when mm-hmm. that's when Scott asked to be on at least a hundred percent more than he was on that episode. And I'm like, well, with zero appearance, it's done. <laughs> Still waiting for that uh, <laughs> for that Star Wars and Character guest spot. Ah, uh, yeah. So. Still waiting. Still waiting to get the four of us together for this month alone. I don't even know if right. we even had a. I don't know if we had a Swick proper by the time this comes out. To be real honest with you, scheduling is a nightmare this time of year. I think I got a good idea for an episode. Just saying. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, you did tell me about that episode, like in two thousand eight. I remember now that conversation. Right. <laughs> Would it be a seven foot green rabbit? Uh no, no better than oh. that. He's got this obscure oh. character he wanted. Would to it do be it. a guy with red Darth hair and short? And short short pants. Well, we actually we actually had. Well, I don't know. Do we want to talk about this, yeah, Matt? Yeah, no, it might we actually get- had two two ideas. Yep. So we we had one idea that was going to be um, a two part episode that would be a crossover between Two True Freaks and Star Wars in character that would cover. Uh, and I don't know which which of us would take which character, but it would basically be the first part would be talking about. Uh, the Marvel Star Wars character uh, Shira Bree and then the second episode um, would be on the other network and that would be talking about uh, Lumaya or Lumia however you want to pronounce it and not spoiling anything for anybody that would be participating in the episode I'm thinking like Tim or, or any of the guys that might not have read the original comics and not knowing what the big thing is there and then I thought of one Based on the episode that Matt did, and it's one of my favorite episodes of Swick, the the episode all about Star Tours, mm. I got to thinking about, you know, it, it's Star Wars in character, obviously, but every once in a while you guys do other things that aren't necessarily characters, but like like uh, more obscure facets of the Star Wars universe, yeah. like a piece of equipment exactly, or a yeah. vehicle or, an animal or know, something like that. Anyone that doesn't know the show, we, we, we literally laser focus into a single minute detail and it's usually something that's not in the forefront. So it, it, it started out with characters, but I'd say after about 50 episodes, we started branching out into little things that everyone would have noticed, but don't think much about until we talk way too long about it on one of the episodes. One one of my absolute favorite episodes was the one that you did on Star Tours. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was a great episode. And your your passion both for Star Wars, obviously, but also for the Star Tours attraction really shone through. I thought it was a really great episode. But it got me to thinking um, about facets of Star Tours, other things about Star Tours. And one of my my favorite pieces of trivia about that attraction, I just got to thinking, 
you know what? This totally fits with the the whole mission statement of Swick, and I thought it would make a really good episode, and that is the Mighty Microscope. Yeah. And I'll just leave it there because I don't want to spoil right. <laughs> what the Mighty Microscope is, but the the appearance of the Mighty Microscope in both versions of Star Tours, the original one and the current one, the total screen time I'm thinking probably equates to a, a cameo on the level of like Wilro Hood. Mm. I yes. mean, it's a little literal blink and you will miss its cameo. Yeah. And that's my favorite episodes of Swick is when you get those things, it's like, who the hell are they talking about? And you have to actually go back and go, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I, I either never noticed it or it's like, wow, I forgot about that because you see it for like three frames of the film. Yeah. You know what I mean? I love those kind of characters and and uh and details and that's totally what this is it plus is. it just has uh a, i i think it has a fascinating history when you start delving into it the one thing though that um i would have to do a little more research on is trying to find out okay so i know the whole history of the thing in the real world i can't find anywhere what the actual function of it is supposed to be in the Star Wars universe. Right. So, you know, other than it being a, a cute little winky Easter egg, what what function does it actually serve in universe? That I can't seem to find anywhere. But anyway, I just I thought that would be a cool idea. It would so be. Yeah. And you showed me some the, the I, as much as as well as I knew Star Tours that we're talking about the original incarnation of it. I'd never it, was, it is a blink and you'll miss it. And apparently I blinked mm-hmm. every time it was on screen because until it's plain as day when it's pointed out to you, but it is. there's no way I ever, it ever even crossed my mind of it being on screen all the times I've been on that ride. Both of the appearances of it, I think are just, it's one of those things that yes, it is. It's, it's there. It's plain as day. They make no effort to hide it, but I think it's one of those things you have to kind of be looking for. If you're not, it just blends so well with the other pieces of equipment of the Star Wars universe that you don't even stop to think that's kind of odd. You know, that yeah. does, you know, what is that thing? You, you don't even notice it because it just blends with its environment, yep. which is, you know, that uh, those are the best kind of Easter eggs, I think. True. Absolutely. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that is, um, well, well, wait a minute. What was the name of the character again? The first one. one? Shire Brie, right? Isn't that yeah. a cheese? <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah, it's a cheese of the of the uh, hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> you saved that joke. Oh, poor Bill. Did he? <laughs> <laughs> I love how we could turn anything into a negative Bill moment. That's <laughs> right. Yes. Thanks for helping out with this episode, Bill. But you're going to pay for it. What? Oh no. <laughs> I was going to say I'm kidding, but I'm probably not by the time this is over. Probably not. Probably not. You know, if there wasn't this restraining order, <laughs> all I'm saying. Uh, yeah, we're we're barely we're dancing on that legal line of even talking to each other, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, so that is uh kind of the well that actually kind of explains how we all got to know each other through podcasting and through the at least the common uh, what would you call it fandom of Star Wars, and it's branched out from then. Uh, from there, I should say, uh, like I said, starting this episode, I, this is something I've wanted to talk about. It's something I've wanted to discuss, but I, we don't do any comic coverage on news as, and so I went to the guys that I know best and I trust their opinions and have a good time talking comic books with. And that was the guys from back to the bins. 
but they were all busy. <laughs> exactly. So I brought in these guys. <laughs> but I did want to ask, I'm going to just completely, since we're kind of making it, we are making this across every episode. It's a back to the bins episode, but I'm going to change kind of the, not the entire format, but just there's one thing I wanted to start with before we get into the synopsis and even discussing the bug. I did want to ask, and we kind of had this discussion a little bit before I started recording. I wanted to ask if you guys had read this before, because in all honesty, I did not know this existed until this year. And for anyone that, that isn't familiar with this, this was published in 1998. So for it to have been around almost 20 years in I thought I was a big War of the Worlds fan. I was a little disappointed in myself not knowing that this existed before. Have Have you guys read this before preparing for this episode? I had not. Okay. I knew it existed. I heard good things about it, and uh, I, I, you know, it was on my to read list. Oh, since nineteen ninety eight, but I never got around to it. And then you gave me a reason to read it, and I'm glad. You know, I, I enjoyed reading it. I hate to give away my opinion right <laughs> off the bat, but, uh, but I, I enjoyed reading it, and I'm glad you kind of moved it up my queue a bit. Oh, cool. I had not read this either. I like like Paul. I I had seen it before, uh, but had never actually picked it up and read it. So this was uh, this was a new experience for me, and I'm going to hold my cards. I can say I kept, kept wondering while I was reading it where Killraven was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was hoping that would come up at some point. But I guess I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get well, to this maybe. Yeah, definitely cuz I'm I'm curious if Matt um not really being a comic book guy if he if he's aware of uh, of Killraven and the whole connection there. So yeah, I'm I'm hoping that will come up. Nope. And that's why I'm um, glad I'm discussing this with you guys cuz this is all new to me. Um, as far as my history with this, yes, I have read it before, uh, but fairly recently. And by recently, uh, you know, sometime since Two True Freaks has started, because this book came to my attention through Two True Freaks. And I really wish for the life of me, my memory was better. Um, that's all I remember is that some facet of Two True Freaks, whether it was Comics Monthly Monday or more likely it was back to the it was either back to the bins or tales of the JSA I'm thinking but a reader um either a reader or maybe even Michael Bailey I'm not sure but somebody involved with Two True Freaks either a fellow podcaster or a, a listener um brought this to my attention that this existed and uh, again I want to say because of the of the nature of the book and the golden age thing and everything it w- it either spun out of like like I say tales of the JSA or maybe it was a discussion on um back to the bins about elseworld stories something like that I I just don't I don't remember exactly but it was um brought to my attention that it existed because you know like you Matt I I had no idea this even existed and then once I found out that it existed and, and what the, the nature of it was, it really whet my appetite for it because, uh, I, likewise, I'm a big uh, War of the Worlds fan myself. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was you know really excited to, to track it down, but a little nervous to track it down as well because I don't feel like I have the greatest track record with Elseworld <laughs> stories. I love the concept, but so few of them really wow me. And... Uh, I kind of feel the same way about property mashups. There's so many of them that sound so exciting and it sounds like, wow, this is going to be great. You know, uh, um, I'm trying to think of, you know, some of the ones that have been so disappointing and there's so many of them, but you know, just we're, we're two 
properties finally meet and and you know clash or team up or whatever and it just seems like generally they're kind of meh at best but usually abysmal you know yeah and and so i was kind of nervous at the same time as i was excited about this and i'll kind of leave it there because i don't want to spoil what you know, what my reaction to the book was ultimately. Okay. Um, my only regret going into this show is I, you know, my work schedule has just been kicking my ass. So I'm happy to be here to talk about this. I just wish I'd had time to do a proper reread of the, of the whole issue uh, before sitting down to do this. I, I breezed back through it, but I didn't get a chance to really, um, you know, properly read it and take notes and all that sort of thing. So this is going to kind of just, come back to me and be kind of stream of consciousness as we go through. So. Okay. Well, with any luck between my <laughs> frighteningly extensive synopsis and with Bill and Paul's <laughs> help discussing it, hopefully a lot, a lot of it comes back to you. I'm, I'm sure it will. It's pretty, it's been a few days since I gave it a, a real good read and it had been about two months since I read it before that. And, and that rereading it's, it's not like I, I missed a whole lot. A lot of it stuck with me. So I think, I think you might find that as well as we go through here. Hoping so. Okay, Hoping so, so. Uh, like I we've said, and it's the title of the episode. This is Superman: War of the Worlds. Like Scott had just said, it's an Elseworld story, and I think Scott did a pretty good job explaining what that is. It's it's an out of canon story, and in this case, this is a property mashup. It's War of the Worlds and Superman. Uh, its cover date is 1998. The sale date I looked up thanks to Mike's Amazing World, which is a wonderful website. I would have never come across if it hadn't been for Back to the Bins. I got the information that it was actually released on October 14th, 1998. That is just weeks before the 60th anniversary of the Orson Welles and Mercury Theater of the Air, or on the air, uh, 1938 broadcast of More of the Worlds. This was written by Roy Thomas. The artist was Michael Lark. Letterer was Willie Schubert. And colorist was Noel Giddings. I'm assuming Noel is the name and not Noel, because I did look this up and saw it was a woman. I, I, I believe right. the way that's spelled, that would be Noel. Okay. Okay. I'm not, I, now, I mean, I took my first big step way out of my realm. So that's, I'm, <laughs> I don't know any of these people, unfortunately from the, actually it's not true. I think Roy Thomas rings a bell. Is it me or is it ironic that the name Noel has two L's in it? <laughs> it is ironic now. I didn't notice that. You're absolutely right. Matt, do, you read, you've read some Star Marvel Star Wars, yes. right? Okay, then, yeah, you should be familiar with the name of Roy Thomas. Okay. He, he's directly responsible for Marvel Star Wars existing. Okay, then that's probably almost certainly where I got the, heard the name from. All right, I got the synopsis here, so I will start. The story begins with a familiar narration, a tale of the Earth being watched by envious eyes. But in this version, not by one planet, but two Both worlds see the Earth as a source of salvation, one through conquest, the other through hope. One planet begins its reach for Earth as a rocket carrying a young child traverses through space, landing on a small town's farm. As the boy grows up, he develops strengths and abilities beyond normal humans. Now a man, we see Clark Kent as he stands over the graves of his foster parents and silently vows to put his titanic strengths into channels that would benefit mankind. In the sky above, the planet Mars looms and explosions erupt from the planet's surface. The next morning, Clark Kent arrives in Metropolis and heads to the Daily Star newspaper. After a clever spin on his journalism experience, 
Clark convinces editor George Taylor to give him a shot, and he's assigned to report on a meteor crash outside the city. Lois Lane storms into the office. After a year of being stuck writing the Miss Lonely Love column, she's outraged that any man in pants can come off the street and get an instant shot at being a Daily Star reporter. Taylor compromises and sends the two out to report on the story as a team. The two reporters grab a cab to the crash site. Once they arrive, it's clear this is no meteor. Lois Lane quickly recognizes astronomer Professor Ogilvy. Ogilvy tells Lane that he's been investigating the projectile. Ogilvy's companion, Dr. Lex Luthor, with a full head of red hair, admonishes the professor for sharing too much with the newspaper. The top of the object begins to unscrew, and the moving piece falls to the ground with a mighty kathunk. From the opening, the crowd sees what looks like gray snakes, only to learn that they are the tentacles of a large gray alien peering out from the vessel. As the alien draws closer to the opening, the Earth's gravity overcomes it and it falls to the ground. Professor Ogilvy approaches with a white flag as the second alien begins to emerge. This alien raises an object towards the crowd and fires a heat ray, incinerating the professor and many of the onlookers. Clark tells Lois to run, but it's too late. The alien turns and fires. Clark pulls Lois in front of him, turning his back to the blast. Lois and Clark are safe, but the blast has burned off Clark's suit, leaving him standing in a red, blue, and yellow caped uniform. As the army arrives, a crash object unfolds and releases a tripod walking war machine. Kent tells the men to get away before the aliens fire again as he leaps to the sky. Confused if this red and blue stranger is with the humans or the aliens, the soldiers watch as Kent is blasted out of the air, taking the full brunt of the heat ray. Stunned and in pain, Kent sees the tripod turn on the artillerymen. Swooping in, Kent pushes the soldier and the artillery gun to safety. Kent lifts the readied field gun over his head and fires at the tripod. Seeing no effect, Kent decides to use the gun an old-fashioned way and swings it like a club, dropping one of the tripods to the ground. Clark Kent rips open the fallen tripod, disposing of the Martian inside. Meanwhile, the remaining tripods begin to destroy the town on their way to Metropolis. Fleeing, Lois stops to frantically call the Daily Star with her report. The call is cut off as the tripods knock out the phone lines. Dr. Luther offers Lane protection at his laboratory on the outskirts of the city. Lane and Luther are cut off by three tripods. Lois is grabbed by one of the tripod's arms and placed inside the machine. Luther tries to run, but is cut off by sprays of fire from the tripods. Luther stops short of the wall of flames, but is close enough to have his hair catch ablaze. The machines begin to release a black smoke that lays close to the ground, choking the soldiers. Kent is powerless to do anything for them and leaps to the sky before becoming overcome by the smoke himself. In midair, two tripods fire on him, and for the first time in his life, Clark Kent has the wind knocked out of him. Kent hits the ground, passes out, and one of the tripods picks him up and tosses him inside the vehicle. The tripods turn and head for Metropolis, firing first on the Daily Star building. The narrator returns to tell us that the Battle of Metropolis and the battle with the invaders has been lost by humankind. Time passes as Kent is waking up and restrained on board one of the Martian war machines. A man speaks. It's a voice Kent recognizes. A now completely bald Lex Luthor stands among the Martians. A third man is in the room. This man, Luthor explains, is lunch to the Martians, or at least his blood. Luthor further informs Clark Kent that the double heat ray blast rendered him unconscious for three weeks and tells Kent of the Martians conquering the Earth. 
Kent witnesses Luther communicating with the Martians and accuses him of collaborating with the aliens. Luther corrects him. He's not collaborating. He's working for them. Luther has Lois Lane brought to the room. When Lane arrives, Luther explains that the Martians have defeated mankind's greatest weapons but yet are falling to the smallest of enemies, earthbound germs. All of them, that is, except the Martians that have been in contact with Clark Kent. Luther theorizes that Clark Kent is not of Earth, and if he can find what on or in Kent is protecting these Martians, he can write his own ticket to this new world. After a few hours, Luther finds the answer. An antibody in Kent's immune system different from humans, stronger and more advanced. Revealing this key to the Martian's safety, the aliens turn on Luther and begin to crush him with their tentacles. Lois strikes, plunging a syringe into the alien's head, killing it instantly. Luther releases Kent and the three fight their way out. Kent chases after and stops the Martians carrying the serum. Kent tries to comfort Lois Lane during this madness, but she recoils, wary of him now having just learned that he too may be an alien. The Martian war machines attack and Kent retaliates. Kent takes out one of the tripods at the legs with a nearby car. He catches a black smoke rocket before it hits the ground and throws it back at the tripod, taking a second war machine out. Clark Kent attacks the third and final tripod, pulling it down by the legs with his bare hands. The hood of the war machine separates and floats in the air over Kent. Kent leaps to the air and the flying machine fires on him. After hitting the ground, Clark Kent musters up his last bit of strength, lifting a fallen Martian war machine and throwing it under the flying attack vehicle. The vehicle crashes to the ground and Kent begins to tear it open. In the midst of his rage, Clark asks himself, what am I doing, and then falls to the ground. Lois Lane and Lex Luthor run to Kent's side. Kent explains that the war fever took hold of him until he realized that he and the Martians are both aliens. If the Martians hadn't attacked first, it may be he himself that the humans would be running from. Lois admits that they've all been fools and vows to make it up to Clark. At that moment, Lex Luthor reveals that Clark Kent is dead. Drawing on Kent's discovery, Luther devises a plan to disrupt the Martian anti-gravity field and leads the planet in a defensive strike against the Martians. The Earth is victorious and begins to rebuild. Lex Luthor marries Lois Lane and is sworn in as vice president. Outside the League of Nations, a monument for Clark Kent has been built. A statue of Kent stands atop a base that reads, Clark Kent died 1938. He was born of one world, grew into manhood on another, and saved his adopted planet from the wrath of a third during the War of the Worlds. And that is the extended scene-for-scene scene synopsis. Hope I didn't lose all of the back-to-bin listeners during that. Oh, no, they used no. to build. Okay, hey, gotcha. <laughs> I have to commend you for not referring... To him is Superman. You lead into my first, very first sentence after the word the end. There's a lot of things I love about this. A, a lot. And the the thing that starts off most I love about this is, and it's, you just pointed it out, apart from the cover, the word Superman never appears in this issue. It does once. It does yeah, where? One, one, one time it does. Yeah. Luthor refers to him as the Nietzschean Superman. Oh, okay. When he's, when, I, he's, when he's trussed up. I guess I didn't read that as a name, like, uh, then it probably must have passed over me. But as far as his name being Superman, it, we never get there. What what I found a little bit of in this was, unlike most Elseworld stories and what-if stories, they didn't go to 
the hey it was ironic in the real stories this is where we went so we're going to touch on that a little bit to show it to you this really went you know truly as an elseworld story and except for his origin you know of landing on earth from krypton and all you know basically from the point of the martians landing on earth it took a turn there and it never really had that parallel feeling anymore Mm -hmm. The, the and I think that's, that shows some creativity in the writing that sometimes you don't get. You know, they're, they're so busy trying to give the Rod Serling irony <laughs> right, yeah. that they don't bother, you know, being creative. And I think this one was creative. I, I thought it was very creative in that aspect because the couple of parallels that they are, they do not beat you over the head with them. And I, I thought that was fantastic because the very first thing that – Clark Kent, once he's revealed in his costume, says to Lois Lane is, you needn't be afraid, I won't harm you, which is Superman's first words to Lois Lane in Action Comics number one. Ah. And I think that's fantastic because they don't make a big friggin' deal out of it. So if you catch it, it's really cool. If you don't catch it, you never really realize it even is a parallel. Yeah, and I that's think that's true. great. I love stuff like that. And now, from the more obvious point of view, you do have Lex Luthor losing his hair. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and you do have the recreation of, acting, of the cover of Action Comics number one. Right. Yeah. Lifting you know, those, those are kind of obvious, but those are more, uh, at least the cover of Action Comics number one, I see that more as an homage than a, hey, look how clever we are. That's the exact right. word I used in the description was homage. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the whole 1938, the, or the whole Action Comic number one thing, like it's as I when I was reading this, I, my first reaction, and not being a super huge comic knowledge, but I do know Action Comic Number One. I actually covered it f- pretty extensively in another show called "I Have Questions." As soon as I start reading his retelling of the origin, I kind of roll my eyes. It's, it's somewhere along the line before I really get into the story. It dawns on me that the introduction of Superman action comics, number one and the Orson Welles war of the worlds both took place the same year. And then when exactly. I, when I made that connection, I had a totally different attitude towards the retelling. Cause I was like, Oh, we're, 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 I mean, well, I don't think I need to spell it out, but the combining of the two, it's just a telling of this. This is how it would have played out. Had it happened in this particular world. And I was, I went from rolling my eyes to like, let me start over again with that in mind and, and really, really dive into this. That's one of the big reasons I like that it's this version of Superman. This is the classic um, golden age Superman. Pretty much, not exactly, but pretty much the one from Action Comics number one. And the, the reason I say not exactly is that the costume, while extremely um, reminiscent, is not exactly the same. Yeah, But still, generally, it, it is that original superman so it's not the vastly uh superpowered superman that we've become you know used to where he can uh fly out into space and has heat vision and uh can fly you know even just flying he doesn't i I don't think i off the top of my head i don't think he uh exercises x-ray vision so roy thomas this is kind of roy thomas's thing he is one of the great comics historians especially of the of the golden age so he's very versed in these characters as they existed in their original time periods and so he is really giving us a superman as superman existed at that time 
So, you know, he doesn't fly and he makes reference to that fact because he rescues a soldier that asks him, how, how are you flying like that? And he says, I, I don't fly, I jump, mm. which mm-hmm. is what Superman did back then. And again, during this time, this really, in a lot of ways, the, the power level and the power set the power ma- that uh, Superman has right here, he's essentially like Captain Marvel because he has that, that great strength you know that titanic super strength he's really tough and everything but he doesn't have all the other powers you know the vision powers and all that so he really has to battle these things with nothing more than his uh his super strength but he doesn't have like heat vision you know if he had his heat vision he'd probably be able to just laser these things and Mm, make quick work of them but he doesn't so he has to really work at this and I love that. Yeah. That that's great. On the other side of the battle, I guess you could say, I mean that the um they didn't add anything to the Martian attack that we hadn't seen before. They kept all that mm-hmm. uh, and pretty much the uh, all the way up until where they start fighting each other, really until Metropolis. It's it's it, it's I don't know if it's scene for scene, but it's a story we know. It's a crashed vessel right. uh, that has Ogilvy. I mean, that's pretty. That's that's drawn right from the book. That's a name that didn't even make it into the Orson Welles production. But the um, the, the, it's a crash. They go to a crash site. The aliens had come out. They attacked from within the craft. Then we got the uh, we got the uh, tripods. Now maybe I guess the argument could be made that that the flying bit of it was added. And I guess that really was. But I guess it was just enough addition that it, it it didn't ever make me think now we're straying too far i, I think I, I absolutely agree with you with that's this what i know of the golden era of superman and it's also very true to everything i've known about war of the world right yeah i will definitely agree with that i i think it's a wonderful melding yeah. of these two properties that really does give uh equal weight and and does justice to both of them neither one overshadows the other yeah. and they both stay very faithful and true to the source material that they're drawing upon and that doesn't often happen <laughs> right. in these kind of mashups or very rarely happens to be honest with you yeah my- it does it in a way I'm sorry, dude. Oh no, no, no! I was just saying. My experience are usually uh, obscure character crossovers, like Batman versus Predator, and they always make some kind of obscure adjustment to either side to get an outcome. So I was just agreeing right. with Scott with that example. Yeah, my my take on it was also that it, it didn't require any vast knowledge of the source material that they were mashing here either. They kind of gave you everything you needed to know in this story. Mm-hmm. That's true, and yeah. I think. Just as I read it through, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking us to a different area, but it's just something that really jumped out at me and I, and I felt very strongly about as I was reading it was I think this may be one of the best paced comic books I've ever read. Oh, yeah. It, it's about 65 pages or so. And it you it, fly through this story, it but quick. it's not yeah. that decompressed yeah. story that you feel like you read it and you didn't get anything. True, you know it's it's not that you know that for lack of uh, you know I, I hate to use this guy as a sacrificial lamb all the time because I do enjoy a lot of his writing, but that Brian Michael Bendis story where you know you read it and you're done in five minutes and you feel like well nothing really happened. There's a lot that goes on in this story. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot to read, but it just 
flies through. It's it's a you know it's a real page turner is what it is. Yeah, and the only time that there's any kind of passage of time, it's handled. I thought really well because even though you're not looking at it through a point of view, you're pretty much seeing the entire story through. I wouldn't say Superman's perspective, but you're watching Superman. Well, I guess in this case, Clark Kent throughout the story. There's there's uh, of course some uh, exceptions to that, but generally you're watching it through Superman's uh, watching Superman in this story. And the fact that he got knocked out for three weeks, and we pick it back up where he regains consciousness, and Lex Luthor gives a, just a really quick one or two panel explanation of what happened, just enough for us to. It's not a super exposition scene. It's enough for us to understand what's happening next, and it's setting us up for what happens in just a page or two later. Uh, it, it was great to get the story to the point where Earth is all but defeated and keep the story moving without having to actually see Earth be defeated for you know an extra twelve pages. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that totally. I think, uh, like I said, it's much possibly one of the best paced comics I've ever yes. read. Um, now, I'm really curious. Now, we, again, discussed before this started, what is possibly missing or wrong, if anything, with the golden era Superman, golden age Superman world in this? Because I certainly have no idea. Um. Just off the top of my head, uh, a couple of things. His boots are wrong because mm-hmm. the the classic, you know, action comics number one Superman that this arguably should be uh, had more of the more like Wonder Woman's original uh, boots, you know, where it was the lace up. So it wasn't the the boots like we're seeing here. The boots he's wearing here are pretty much like Superman's boots. But originally, it was more like a sandal that laced up to uh, essentially like just below, you know, like just above the calf. Um, Artistically speaking, I I thought that the character models for Superman and for uh, Lois were probably taken a little bit from Action Comics. And I saw a a little bit of influence on the uh, Adventures of Superman TV series, particularly on Lois. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think she, she almost looks like a mashup of Phyllis Coates and Noel Neal to me. Yeah, I th- I think it's actually drawing from a lot of other sources. I, I think it's not relying strictly just on you know the early action comic Superman because there's a, a couple of sequences in here that I think are extremely reminiscent of the Fleischer cartoons, particularly the sequence where Superman gets blasted falls out of the sky, struggles for a moment, and then passes out, reminds me very much of the mechanical monsters. Because there's a sequence, again, in the mechanical monsters, which, if memory serves, I think is the very first Fleischer Superman cartoon, in that one, he couldn't fly yet. So there's a point where he jumps, he lands on one of the mechanical monsters, and he's trying to rip open the cargo hatch that Lois Lane um, accidentally stumbled into and free her an alarm goes off and the monster turns upside down. And when it does, it dumps Superman off. So he falls like this incredible distance and hits a bunch of power lines and goes down. And this sequence in here where he gets blasted and falls out of the sky really strongly reminded me of that. And some of the panels where he's, um, leaping at the tripods and batting them around and stuff again reminded me an awful lot of mechanical monsters so i i think that some of that 
uh, is a direct reference or a direct homage to uh, to the Fleischer stuff, particularly that first uh, episode, the Mechanical Monsters. Uh, there were some other things like that. I don't think uh, Jimmy Olsen existed yet. Mm, okay. I, I, I want to say he didn't come along until... I couldn't quote you the exact issue, but I want to say it was several issues down the line of action. So he's kind of introduced, you know, retroactively here before he would exist. Um, there was a couple other things like that, but I mean, th- those types of things are really nitpicky. Okay. Um, what yeah, a- Roy Thomas is always good for um, bringing in a lot of disparate, uh, different things historically mm-hmm. and tying in other um <laughs> things from continuity of other books do you think the martians look a bit like the dominators which appeared in the um 88 and 89 in the invasion series i know they don't look completely like them but like with the row of teeth they have remember how the the dominators had the two rows of sharp teeth like that is that is that a dc yes okay i'm gonna look that up okay See, just, I'm wondering. Just for a way of reference, Jimmy Olsen first appeared in Action Comics number six. Six. Okay, I was thinking fourteen, so I would have been. Well, off. you know what? It says here he first appeared as an anonymous character in Action Comics number six, and was named in Superman number thirteen. Okay. So you, you're you're not far off. Okay. It's a kind of a. Not, I don't know if it's a what's the word I was going to say. It's kind of a shame. That's not the word I'm looking for. But it's uh, that's a detail that actually didn't really need to be in here because he didn't it's not like he snapped a picture that became crucial to the story right. so they didn't really need a minute <laughs> right well you could say that about almost every jimmy olsen appearance <laughs> good point yeah. <laughs> yeah not a not a big jimmy olsen fan <laughs> but 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 roy thomas is always you know because he's he he wrote a lot of the all-star squadron too right right scott yeah absolutely yeah he wrote which, all of it which yeah. is this time frame yeah absolutely i mean he's He's great for not only does he have a you know a, a wealth of comic book knowledge he he understands this era uh, has a great love of the golden age material but also uh, he's gone out of his way to make himself a, an a, 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 a historian of the actual time periods and then works to kind of incorporate these characters organically into the time periods that they're supposed to exist in. So it works really well. I, I love, you know, the the last page in this where you're seeing the tribute uh, statue, uh, you know, to Clark Kent and, you know, the little inscription being now it says here it calls it the new League of Nations. But clearly behind the statue, you've got the Parisphere and Trilon from the 1939-40 World's Fair. Mm. But what's interesting here is well, that mm. possibly in this world that would have maybe never happened now because the world has to recover from <laughs> True, what yeah, happened yeah. in this whole thing. But in and 38, as, as presented in this story, uh, apparently, you know, uh, the United States and, and England became fascist countries, whereas Germany became a Germany, Japan, and Italy became more democratic. Right. Well, I don't think, well, uh, well, maybe it did be, the United States might have become a little bit, but not not as much as England did. Well, it um, says 
let's see, the devastated Germany, Japan, Italy, and Soviet Union have right, re right. reorganized upon vaguely democratic lines. However, with its royal line extinguished, the masses of Great Britain have turned to the native-born fascist Sir Oswald Mosley for leadership. Lex Luthor, now world-renowned and married to the former Lois Lane, has been sworn into the... I missed... Hold on. Wait, it's, I thought it said about the United States on there also. Maybe well, I'm says, wrong. But, but, but John Cactus Jack Gardner, the Texan who became president upon Roosevelt's death, shows a tendency to rule with an iron hand during the rebuilding. So it doesn't really say okay, yeah. that they're... Yeah. I'm, I, I, maybe I read a little too much into that. That's yeah, a how, name I meant to ask about. Is that a is the is the uh, the president? Is that anyone yes, in the DC world? No, he was the actual vice president of FDR. Oh. <laughs> okay. And then he became president, and here they swore in Luther, I guess, for his. Oh, you know what? It said it right. Work he did. That's so. That's you know what? That's. It's, now oh, yeah, that you're well, saying well, that, but, I, I remember reading it directly well, in the comic, but I guess I was so in, in right, focused but you may on not know comic that actually, history. He actually was, <laughs> in history, he was at this, He was the VP of Roosevelt at that time. Yeah, I, right? yeah. It's, it's, because right. Roosevelt wouldn't actually die until later in the 40s. Gotcha. So five, I want yeah, to say. And then, yeah. and then Truman would become, was it Truman? It completely yeah. shows yeah. my ignorance yeah. in history. I was, I was sitting there trying to find a DZ connection, and it's like I was trying too hard. It's like, this really happened, and idiot. The guy they mentioned, which going into what you're saying before, Scott, about Roy Thomas being a historian of the area, of the era, not the area, is that Sir Oswald Mosley was a uh, leader of like the British fascist party i believe it was right. called buff the u.s right. <laughs> um so he was an actual person as well but he didn't he gained some prominence he was in parliament uh at, at one time but then was um uh, he you know fell from grace and fell out of power right so, so it's well, it's interesting that he pulls all this in well i think it's really interesting that uh, you know this this plaza this fairgrounds which yeah, again you know in the real world would, right, would have been the world's fairgrounds. Here it's called the New League of Nations complex because in the well, real world... The, right, the, because the original League of Nations was basically the, the UN. Well, the UN well, briefly uh, did set up shop in oh, the okay. Flushing Meadow fairgrounds in the real world while they waited for what is today the UN building to be constructed. Mm. So the original... Uh, UN did meet in Flushing Meadows using the um, what's what today is the Queen's Museum. Uh, I forget what that building was, the U.S. Pavilion, I think, United States Pavilion, where um, we went. Um, yeah, where we went. Yeah, because there's a plaque in that building that actually says this building served as the original headquarters of the UN from you know such and such time. There's a you know a whole history of that, and I was just reading about that not long ago. Uh, well, it's nice that he calls it the New League of Nations and, yeah. and not the United Nations, meaning right, that yeah. they, they, they drummed up the old name because mm, the right. League of Nations disbanded at, at some point. Yeah, but I evidently in this world it did not. So rather than adopt the name of United Nations, they stuck with League of Nations. So nice little nods. I mean, you know, that's obscure history stuff yeah, that not I, a lot of people would know, but he knows this stuff and, and works it in. And I think that's really clever. I think that's neat. Well, the only historical nitpick that I found was, and I think I told you guys before, but I'm trying to find the page when the, when the planes are coming in to attack the tripods, 
Hold mm-hmm. on, I'm trying to find it. Yeah, it's page 29. And these guys say, they're here. It's those new P-38s. That's not a P-38. <laughs> a, anybody that's played the P-38 Lightning video game, which, Scott, I know you and I have played it because I think we, we, we played it over at uh, Disney Quest. Remember, the P-38 has the dual wing, uh, one wing, but it's got, the, it's got like the double um, back that, that uh, from, the, from the wing structure it goes with two struts back that then attach the rear rudders and stuff. It looks like a big square, uh-huh. kind of. Oh, okay, I know the one you're talking. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll just instead of just trying to describe it, I'll put it put a picture in, in the chat. Um, but yeah, it's got a cockpit in the center, two engines on the side. From the engines, it goes back. From each engine, it goes back to the uh, the back of the plane, and then there's a connecting piece in the back as well. And and uh, I'm like, wow, that's that's not not even close. And actually, the planes they describe look more like the um, the F6F, which was flown a lot in the in the Pacific War. So I was right. kind of like, no, oh, that's kind of an odd. I mean, it could be that the artist just didn't know um, what Roy Thomas was rep- was referring to. I don't know. It, it was just just an oddball thing. I've got the picture here. I'm putting it up in the chat so you guys can see what I'm talking about. See, that is a P-38. What uh? What page is that in the story? I'm trying page to... Page 29. 29. Okay. Alrighty. See, that's a P-28, and I'll give you a picture of a uh, F-6F. I just oh, I got to think for planes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I would have never. So you see, that. that's the other picture of an F six F, Hellcat. Uh, I gotcha. Yeah, I'm like P thirty eight. Or maybe that guy was just trying to. He was trying to impress his buddies by by spouting off, and they didn't know the difference. So he be. looked like a genius. Well, well, what's also cool there is they've they've got like. They've got the machine gun there, and that's like the old water-cooled machine gun that that they've got from World War One. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, is that why it's like a kind of like barrel around the? Yep, I yep. seen. Yeah. I did. Yeah, again, I wouldn't yeah. detail. I would not would not know, hadn't picked up on. So yeah, there's there's a lot of cool cool little details in here. I'm just surprised that the planes were off, but that but that's it. That's the only nitpick I got. There's I I've thought- I've been going through this trying to like just say anything any kind of critique there's not much i can say about this the only only thing that kind of jumps out to me as any kind of nitpick in the artwork and it's not even really the artwork it's just the it's the drawing we only have in 60 some pages we only have one double page spread and it's of the tripods walking down metropolis there's i would have much rather had seen something a little more identifiable to superman and dc than this because this could be any city but right. that's that's a minor nitpick. I mean, it's uh, I would like to have Superman in the midst of this somewhere, and he's not. But pff, that's 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 me really stretching for something to to complain about. You know, they reused that that picture on the inside of the front and back covers. Yeah, I didn't notice the back. Let me see the uh, front and oh yeah, okay, I see. <laughs> as far, as, far I, as the artwork goes, though, I I thought that it uh, it really kind of had a 
golden age feel, but it also, to me, it, it feels like kind of like Mike Mignola. And, uh, you but know, it kind of has Mike that Mignola. What? Cause we know you, but a good Mike, Mike Mignola. I know you're not a big, or is it you or Scott? That's not a big fan of Mike Mignola. I, I think it's Scott. He, his style is not typically a style I like, but everything I've read that he's drawn, I've enjoyed. So he, he, he manages to transcend the style and be enjoyable to me anyway. Yeah, it looks a little bit like him with maybe a tad more detail. Not saying that Mike Mignola isn't detailed. It's just it, it's a little bit more. I almost got one of the shots of uh, Clark Kent gave me a, uh, what was it, Gary Frank feel. Really? Now that, yeah. you'd have to point that one out to me because I didn't see that. I, I would I would describe if i had to describe this i would i would describe it as mike mignola meets steve rude because it's it's it reminds me an awful lot of um some steve rude golden age superman stuff that i've seen he if if you're not familiar with steve rude um think the the first post-crisis world's finest three-issue miniseries uh he was the artist on that uh and i I think dude rude the dude rude yep that's him. Page twenty four, bottom, bottom one, where Superman's was lifting the, the artillery cannon over his head. But now I'm looking. I mean, he, it, it. I thought it had a vague Gary Frank look to it with the eyes, but maybe now it almost looks more like what is it, Steve Dillon? I'm thinking. Oh, I hope yeah, not. yeah. You're right. No, you're right. It does actually look a, a lot like Steve Dillon right there. Yeah, it does. And then there's another one where he's trussed up and he's got blood on his cheek when uh, Luthor's interrogating him. You know, Luthor's, I, I, you know, I can't believe he became the vice president. He's a douchebag. I can't believe Lois <laughs> married him. Yeah, right? That too. Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah. I must have been insane. Oh, screw you. You're an opportunist, you a-hole. <laughs> Speaking of that blood that you're talking about, I have a question here. And again, this, this may be me. I don't know if it's overthinking it, but not having the knowledge to know any better. When he's on the ship, there's this green hue, and he is bleeding. I was wondering, and again, this this might be explained in something in the Golden Age era that I don't know, but I was wondering if this was supposed to insinuate that some of the Martian technology might have kryptonite in it, and that's why he's able to be restrained and bleeding at one point. Kryptonite didn't come along until much later, though, didn't it, Scott? Yeah, they they, they certainly don't say anything about that, and that would be just your picking it up from the look and it's something i hadn't thought of but i don't think that's a bad thought but also this isn't the same superman this is the this is the superman of this time frame which isn't indestructible mm, okay this is, that's that's the kind of question i was asking exactly that could be could be a happy medium between the two for people like me and then mm-hmm. people ever, the rest of the world that knows better Well, I was thinking about that the other day, unrelated to this, and it really is kind of a misconception that Superman is invulnerable because he can be hurt. Right. So invulnerable means you cannot be hurt. He can be hurt. Just the threshold to hurt him is so much higher than it is for anybody else. Mm. He is, for all intents and purposes, invulnerable. Matt can take him down with his cutting wit. (laughs) Unfortunately, that, it wears I don't me know out why, just but that, as fast. some reason that occurred to me the other day. I was thinking about the Death of Superman storyline with Doomsday. And, you know, when he came up against somebody who had a power level sufficient to do it, he can be hurt. He could be killed. Mm. Right. He's not invulnerable. Right. 
Just a thought. What about that homage image we talked about? Because me not being a huge comic book fan and not seeing it, I don't know how many times this this the Action Comics number one cover has been paid uh, homage to in a lot. I figured it has <laughs> been for me. It, it's not so common, so I saw it and and loved it. What did you guys think? Having way more exposure to it than me, I thought it was really clever the way it was used as part of the story in that it wasn't forced because a lot of these end up being really forced or more often what they do is they end up using it as the cover of the book Mm -hmm. um, and and doing it as a cover homage. I I like that it was not uh, the cover homage, although the cover homage this does have kind of baffles me because the cover homage here is Superman number one. Oh, really? I had no idea. Arguably, by the time of Superman number one, not even really the same Superman anymore. Even though that was not that much later after action number one, still arguably he he had changed enough by this point uh, of Superman number one that that I think an argument can be made that, uh, you know, he's already not the same guy. Yep, I see. But the, the homage is now. also subtle enough that it, it is it's not. They're not. They're really not beating you over the head with it. That I think you can let that go. Yeah. Yep. I agree. I I have seen this cover before. Now that I refresh my memory, but I did not pick up on it until you brought it up. Interesting. I think there's some others in here as well too, um, but I think they're more subtle than than that. And I was trying to pick up directly what you know the references were, but I, I didn't. I didn't get them all. Oh, Matt, I, I think the, uh, it's loaded with them. In the chat, I threw up a picture of a Dominator. You can see what I'm talking about. Yeah, okay. I could see. I, I, I get where you're coming kind from. Kind of. I don't know that I would have made the connection myself, but then again, I'd never seen them before. So, I actually, as far as the look of the Martians, it's. I like the. Um, this. I don't know if you guys ever read the illustrated classic of this from the 1950s, I believe. Uh, it looks like it's based on them, but made a little less. They're, they're, the illustrated classics are very uh, cartoony is the best word I can think of, but it's that's probably not a proper description. This looks more well, it fits in with the rest of the comic, but it's the same kind of short, stout, a dozen tentacles and the big eyes and the and the teeth and mouths. So I, I don't how know. are the- how are they described in the original novel? Uh, Does it describe their physical appearance? Yes, and it's it's uh, it's I, the exact wor- exact wording. I don't know, but I know it's 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 gray, oily, brown leather, bear like body with tentacles. Is the that's that's how he described Honeywell. <laughs> <laughs> that's the general gist of it. So I think if you've ever seen the Ray Harryhausen stop motion animation they were going to do for the movie, well before the Universal Pictures movie. Um, right. th- this is the same type of look he gave it as well. So I think this is what right. it's supposed to be. And I like that they kept kept that imagery. Right. Just made right. it fit in with this world. Yeah. I don't know. I'm still I've, I'm always going to be partial to the to the 50s movies one yeah. just because <laughs> that that's that's still my my biggest identifier for War of the Worlds is that movie. I've, I've always been a big fan of that. The uh, tricolor um, eye. Yeah, well, they, you know, I mean, it's it's basically it's ET with just yeah, it the is. Tri-color yeah, I never eye. Yeah, and it I still really like is. the movie somehow. Yeah, the and e. uh, what's that? Never seen it. <laughs> you're lucky. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that, that Spielberg has come right out and admitted that, yeah, he pretty much just ripped off War of the Worlds aliens to make E.T. I, I think he wanted to purposely take those aliens that, you know, are, are arguably one of the most, I don't know if you want to say hated, but one of the most feared aliens that had existed in movies up to that point and basically take that same alien and turn around, and make it sweet and lovable, and that that's pretty neat if if you think of it, because a lot of people really fell in love with uh, basically everybody but you, Matt. I know, yeah, fell in love with ET. Scared the hell out of me. It's funny <laughs> as you were saying that. I just had a, 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 like a, a connection I never made as you were saying that. It's like I totally remember. In fact, it's funny. Um, the first time Doctor Forrester finds the alien, which is it's still weird saying Doctor Forrester in the post MST three K age <laughs> but when dr forrester finds sees the alien and hits him with a flashlight and he throws his hands up in the air that's the exact same imagery yep. spielberg used in et that scared the yep. crap out of me and made me hate et yep. you're absolutely right <laughs> it never when, put the when, two when together elliot, when elliot flashes yep. the flashlight on him in the cornfield he makes the exact yep. same pose sure as that is. alien does in the 50s war of the worlds and that's that, that's completely purposeful yeah, yeah that's what scared the crap out of me and made me hate that damn movie to this day <laughs> Did you notice the the gun that the army's using, the, the Luthor gun that he invented on page 63, that first panel? Looks a hell of a lot like those radar dish-looking weapons that the Rebellion was using against the walkers in uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, yeah, I see it <laughs> it's now. A, <laughs> it's Hoth, a little yeah. more, yeah, it's a little more retro science fiction, but it still looks a lot <laughs> like it. I think that's neat. Uh, I think my favorite image that really has nothing to do with the story is all the way back on page 10, and it's the look of the cab driver's face when he realizes Kent just said the wrong damn thing to Lois. Like, oh, you screwed up. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Slipping back here. Let's see. Let's. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Scott, you. Uh, I think we mentioned early about kill Raven. oh yes that's yeah. thank you that is yeah. what one yeah. conversation led to but we went on to another subject thank you for reminding me bill yes kill raven was introduced in marvel comics it's actually a concept by neil adams and he was a young subjugated human in the war of the world's timeline who ended up becoming a leader in their revolution against the Martians. Ah. And it was in the comic series, Amazing Adventures, starting with issue 18. And it mm-hmm. ran, I don't know, maybe 20 issues or so. Oh, is that all? I thought it lasted longer than that. I think it went to about issue 38, something like that. Maybe he, you know, somewhere in that range. And then they, they, uh, you know, they, they had, uh, some, some points where he was revived in a graphic novel and some other things, but that was essentially the primary run. But yeah, didn't they tie that into, um, I mean, I know he was supposed to be the six one, the Marvel six one six universe. Yeah. Then they determined that it was not the six one six universe. Yeah. Because it was supposed to be in the future. Um, well, I know I first encountered Kill Raven in an issue of Marvel Team-Up where Spider-Man went to the future. And I don't remember what year he goes to, but it is a year that we are now decades past. <laughs> I want to say it was like 1985 or something. Oh, it was Marvel Team-Up re- 70, uh, 45. 40-something. Yeah, and I can yeah. remember Spider-Man being like, holy shit, this is the future. This is 1985 or whatever <laughs> year it was. 
and thinking, wow, you know, and then, of course, like I say, you know, we're decades past that point. But, yeah, uh, for a time, that was going to be one of the possible futures of the Marvel Universe. Um, I'm not sure the present day disposition of Kill Raven now that we are so far past, you know, the future that he was supposed to be existing in. I don't know if they've uh retconned him or you know to to fit or if they've just retconned him out of existence um this is one of those things i don't know a lot about but i've always been really curious as a matter of fact i just picked up um amazing adventures number 18 when was that guys about a year and a half ago or so i picked it up i picked it up at at, uh my local lcs for a buck Uh, and i picked it up just nice pull yeah, it was. I mean, I picked it up because it was dirt cheap, and I knew it was his first appearance. And also, I knew that uh, that Neil Adams uh, did the artwork on that particular issue. Um, but so far, it's just it's sitting in a box. I've been waiting to bring it to a show. Uh, I'll have to bump it up in the queue and, and bring it to a future <laughs> show because I am really curious now. You know, what's the whole deal and everything, and and how did it all play out? So. Uh, synopsis for future shock uh real quick however uh this is when spider-man was back in the salem witch trials and then he used doc dr doom's time machine to try to get back to his own time says however a malfunction malfunction in the device sends spider-man to the year 2019 and right smack in the middle of another conflict between kill raven and the minions of the martian masters who have taken over earth in this era but if I remember right, he was so, going to different eras and different possible futures because he also visited Deathlock's maybe that's future, which the was one. a different one. I think I'm thinking of Deathlock. Now that you say that, that that clicks because wasn't Deathlock from just like a few years in the future? As yeah, that was in the nineties, like early twenty. Yeah. yeah, I think yeah, Deathlock okay. was I the nineties. Uh, it has been retconned to be an alternate reality designated Earth six ninety one. So, yeah, I think I'm thinking of the Deathlock one. Although I, I do believe I had read the other one as well, but I think that moment I'm I'm thinking of, of, of him saying, you know, the year of whatever it was, 1985 or 1990 or whatever, I think is in that one with Deathlock, actually. Oh, my God. He, I was just looking at a history of Kill Raven. He did a lot of jumping around. <laughs> so through alternate universes and stuff. Yeah. I was trying to see if there was anything identifiable on that third guy that they ate the blood of that you might be able to tie back. Not that I would recognize it, but I wanted to see if there was something like on his shirt or something with his face that I could see if you guys could place him as Kill Raven. But this guy is just such a general guy that I don't think it is supposed to be him. He's lunch. Yeah, he's just dude. Dude they ate. Yum. The only other one, and just on a quick flip back through the the book, the only other one that I caught that I think might possibly be a direct homage to something is that last panel, the bottom panel on page 11, where the guy's holding his hat in his hand and he's kind of wiping his forehead and that farmer's looking at the thing. I think that might be from the 50s movie when the townsfolk are all gathered <laughs> around looking at the crater. Well, I had a question about that because I remember the 50s movie, the three people approach and they get wiped out when they're holding yeah. the flag and waving it. So yeah. there's like three, well, it looks like five guys, but three prominent. And one's, one's, the, per, one's the professor, Ogilvy, a townsman right. in a hat and a cop. Was right. it a cop and, no. prof- and, a, and like a doctor or a professor that gets zapped? No, no, it was okay. just three dudes that were on like fire duty. 
and they okay. they were hanging around there, and they're they're the three guys that are standing. I, as I recall it, nobody else is there. It's just the three of them. When suddenly they they realize that the thing is moving, and then that's when the the top you know oh, unscrews. Okay falls off and then the aliens come out. we if i remember properly we as the audience don't see the aliens but they yeah see they just them. get oh they just and get they, they approach them like hey we're friends and they're waving the white flag and everything and one of the guys actually says the dumbest line ever he goes well everybody knows what the white flag means <laughs> yeah it's the and universal symbol for you're an asshole and then they get fried i love that scene yeah the uh the, the, the white the flag science? has been through from from the serial to the book even to the I mean, almost every version, and it's always been the astro- astronomer. It's Ogilvy in the book. It's Ogilvy in this. It was Pearson in the uh, 1938 one, but it's always it's always that seems to for some reason stuck with almost every incarnation of this story. Right. Where's Tom Cruise in this story? Oh wait, <laughs> oh, wait. maybe that not except for that incarnation. I keep forgetting. Maybe that Tom one Cruise exists. is the guy that gets drug away and the blood drain out of him. Hooray! <laughs> it's so funny you say that, Matt, because that, that it's funny that thought went through my head and you said it out loud. <laughs> I I do I I do as well. I've seen it one time. I thought it was eh, it was all right, but I do. I keep forgetting that that even exists. <laughs> I wish that was better. You know, being being Spielberg, you'd think that'd be you know a knockout, but I I didn't think much of that one. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, well, me the neither. way they fried. The way they disintegrated people was pretty uh, oof. It was like, ooh, man. Dude. I don't know. I, I, I think I would have liked that one better. I mean, that one would have stepped up significantly in my appreciation if they had just used the sound effect of the death ray from the old 50s movie. <laughs> that The sound effects in that movie are just fantastic. I love the sound of the death ray in the in the 50s movie. Well, not, not to get That's up to... I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm not to get too far off subject, but real quick, have you ever watched the old 80s syndicated show? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because yep. that, I, I mean, yeah, that I was, watched, that was, a, that was the late 80s. Yeah. yeah. That was with, that was the guy that, uh, one of the guys that was from Predator was like the main yeah, army yeah, guy, yep. uh, Chavez. And then later oh, it was Star Adrian was Paul. Uh, Adrian Paul was on there. But the, um, uh, the imagery and the sound effects they, they pulled directly. I mean, it's a really, right. really stretch your imagination continuation of the story, but at least they did that. If, if, if memory serves, it wasn't the whole premise that, these were yep, the same were, aliens yep, from the they movie? were putting they were putting cans basically Spaces, yeah yeah well no they just like canned them up and they, they i guess they built up an immunity from what i remember i i they, was watching this when i was in the navy they took human like, form yeah yeah and they played hockey that's not <laughs> that's not a joke there was an episode of the good guys versus <laughs> the aliens in hockey oh good lord <laughs> Versus the Hanson brothers. <laughs> oh, God. I, I would pay damn good money for that. <laughs> now, I'm wondering why did nobody ever get, you know, the, the, you know, the Spider-Man moment, the, the empire strikes back moment and think of to wrap up the legs. I, I don't recall yeah. seeing that in any version of the war of the worlds where they just wrap up the legs of the tripods and trip them up. Just take one out. I mean, they, they fire at the body, take one leg out. It's there's right. there's spindly, they're small. You kind of need three for proper locomotion on something mechanical and not, obviously not a human, but mechanical. It seems like a no brainer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Luther's not as smart as he thinks he is. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> All his intelligence was in his hair. Oh. 
Well, I know you that you, you said that you were you were planning to do more uh, more War of the World stuff, Matt. Yep. So maybe Kill Raven is something we could uh, we could look at I, doing in in the future. Yeah, I mean, I had no I idea. So that's you were going to bring uh, bring that book to Ben. So maybe we'd ask Matt to come on that. Oh, that'd be that awesome. Night. Yeah, 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 definitely. We could do that. He could he can replace Bill. What? <laughs> yeah, I'd oh, like to say that out loud. I, I think it'd be interesting to cover, you know, cover that particular story as, you know, the first Kill Raven story, but then also, um, you know, dive into the history of the character a little bit and learn a little bit more about him because uh, I, I just I don't know as much about him as I, I wish that I did. And I was thinking, I if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think just before they rebooted the Guardians of the Galaxy comic, um, right before the the team that kind of revitalized the guardians uh left the book and then it went on to become uh who's doing the current with bendis i think i want to say they did a story where the guardians were like bouncing through time or something and i think they actually did meet up with maybe not necessarily kill raven himself but i think they wound up like in his timeline Fighting the Martians or something? I don't know. It's kind of tickling my brain that that might didn't have been a story that I read. But did they equate the Martians to the Badoon? Because that's who the yeah. See, that's that's the name that kept going through my head was the Badoon. But are the Badoon are they the Martians? I don't remember. I, I think no, they the, are related. The Badoon somehow. are they, they're you know just as far as I know just a fictional alien lizard species. And then they they expanded them a little bit in uh, in the Defenders, where they actually had male population on one planet and a female population on another, and they were pretty much at war with each other, except to the extent that it was necessary to procreate. Sounds like my house. <laughs> so sorry. So I want to say, but to me, very different from the Martians in this story. See, I want to say that the the Badoon was what the Martians mutated into from War of the Worlds so that Marvel could continue to basically use Kill Raven in his world without it directly being... All right, wait a minute. Okay, the Brotherhood... I don't know. I'm confused now, but I I think they are related. The Brotherhood are mostly closely associated with Guardians of Galaxy, Multiverse Timeline of Earth 691, which we said earlier was the one that Killraven was from. Right. In this reality, Earth fought a war with them in the 30th century until both Earth and its solar system were conquered. It says huh, that? that's, that's, that's this. Yeah, it says... <laughs> uh, I don't know, because that's the same timeline. That's the same universe, but universe, it takes place like yeah. a thousand years later. So I'm not sure, I, you know. See, I'm skimming hmm. Kill Raven's entry on Wikipedia right now, and I'm not seeing the word Badoon anywhere. But I would swear that that the Martians and the Badoon are are they're some somehow they're related. Like like the Badoon is what the Martians became in the Marvel universe, or some shit like that. I don't know. I I read about this a while back, but I just can't remember the whole history of exactly how it all played out. Well, let me look at Earth 691. Vamp, vamp. You guys just keep talking. <laughs> oh, wow. In 1975, Marvel UK's Planet of the Apes comic reprinted Kill Raven as Ape Slayer wow. with alterations to substitute the Martians for apes and place the strip in the Planet of the Apes universe. 
That's hysterical. <laughs> Why is it that I thought the War of the Worlds, you know, the original H.G. Wells story was in the public domain? Hmm. Because if it is, they, you don't have to worry about any copyright issues with yeah, this. Yeah, I, I don't know about There is a like bizarre copyright thing with War of the Worlds, um, and it all has to do with the, oh, what is his name? Jeff, oh, I don't want to. Jeff Foxworthy? No, yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, oh, what is his name? You. Uh, give me just a second. I will. It'll take three seconds. If your skin is green, Jeff, you Jeff, might be a Martian. Martian. There's a Jeff Wayne musical um, that has pretty much adopted or, or maybe commandeered or pirated the War of the World's oh, wow. name and story and is the copyright is the current copyright of this story and it's obviously it's not in name war of the worlds it is the story of war of the worlds hg wells one but since he's the one that has the current copyright on this version it screws everything else up so the the book is in public domain but the name and the story are not it's very weird and i don't know the legalities of it and i don't know if this is making any sense to you paul but uh, because of this musical being taking a copyright with the name in the story, that's what's screwing everything up for this this story, this lineage. Well, I, I do know that the copyright laws get very complex. Okay. So, you know, the, what, what you're saying doesn't come as like a total shock. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. But as far as oh, what its we- current status is, I, I would have had no idea. Hmm. Okay. So, looking at the history of quick history of Earth six nine one. Um, so major Vance Astro, this is the, this is the tie in to basically the past of the guardians guardians is the, yes, the Martians did, but I don't think they're directly tied to the Badoon. I'd have to read. There's a lot Since, of text here. Yeah, uh, there are a couple of things I found here. It says, following minor controversy among fans, whether the Kill Raven of Amazing Adventures is the same as that depicted in the past of the Guardians of the Galaxy, the Ohatmu Alternate Universes 2005 states that Kill Raven and the Guardians share the same timeline set on uh, the parallel universe of Marvel Comics designated Earth 691. So according to this, that, that's the, that's all the same timeline. Kill Raven leads into the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. And then the book that I was thinking of, I was right. It was Kill Raven. Uh, it says here, in an alternate future shown in Guardians of the Galaxy number 18 from 2009, Killraven leads the Guardians against the Martians in the year 3009. So I was right. Now it says here Martians. I, I would I would just about put money on it that they're called the Badoon in that story. Because that's who the Guardians are always fighting is the Badoon. Yeah. So I think the Badoon and the Martians are the same race. I think they just became the Badoon. You know what I Dude, mean? I, in name. You know, you know, I think that's the same... I, I think Badoon is a sound effect a thermal imploder makes in Star Wars Battlefront, Evidently, Kill Raven had a Mar- uh, Marvel graphic novel. I did not know yes, that. Yes, he did. I have that. Huh. Yeah. Isn't that no the idea. freaky one? Isn't that like pretty uh, out there, Paul? Uh, is, is that the, I there, remember. It's been so long since I read it. There's some Kill, Kill Raven story I read that is just like, just really... I see. I personally thought all the Kill Raven stories were kind of out there. 
You were right, though, Paul. That It only lasted uh, 21 issues. It was from uh, Amazing Adventures 18 to 39. For some reason, I thought that ran like years and years, but yeah, it really did not. 73 to 76. Hmm. Well, that's three years. Yeah. But I mean, I thought it ran like a long, long time. You know what I mean? I don't think there's any like... Uh, is there any big independent... So we've covered Marvel... Um, obviously this world of worlds crossovers with DC. I don't really can't think of any major independent comics other than maybe Mars attacks. Um, well, um, you've got classics illustrated. Yep. Is that what okay. you were talking about before Matt? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You got classics illustrated. Um, um trying to think, I know there's something else. There's a very that. short run from arrow comics called uh war of the world's Memphis front. It's a, uh, I don't think it's a, a uh, period piece i don't think it's set in the same time frame but it's it's the it's the events going on in in memphis in a different location at the same time that they would be attacking wherever whatever time period you're at that's the only one right. that and classics illustrator the only two i know off the top of my head well now the mars attacks movie did that was that a comic first because i know there was comics but it was that did that come after the movie or was the movie it based was, on comics the, the movie was based on trading cards Oh, okay. And I don't think... Okay. Okay. Off the top of my head, I don't think Mars Attacks has anything to do with with Other War of the Martians. Worlds. Other, I mean, it's it's a, it's yeah. a similar story, yeah. but I don't think that, that it, it comes from that, you know, like as a direct sequel or, or retelling or anything. I think it's just basically using the same idea of, you know, the Martians attacking the Earth. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. All right. Well, are we ready for grades? Sure. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even got to that yet. I know, okay. right? All right. I'll, I will start this off. Now, the cover. Now, this is weird because I made this before Scott pointed out it was uh, Superman number one. But I'm still going to, this will still be my lowest grade. And I'll stick with the reasons. I'm not going to go and rewrite all this. I'm giving it a B minus. And it's, it's, because it's and it's not because of the actual image so the superman one doesn't really play into my reasoning anyway it's though this exact thing doesn't happen in the story it's representative of the of the story what i don't necessarily like about it to bump it up to an a is that of all the action sequences that involve superman and the tripods this is the one this is the image that provokes the least amount of action because the he's Apart from him, the the tripods are just kind of standing there. They're shooting, of course, but there's like there doesn't seem to be the action that is always following them through this story. So I give it a B minus, but I already buried the lead and said that is by far my lowest grade. Artwork I, after the cover, I can't tell you anything I don't like about it. It is a solid A. You go into the story, and that's what we talked about most. After my synopsis, A plus. I mean, it's it's a good War of the World story. It's a good Superman story. The the retelling of Superman in this year in this time period was once I put the two together, just made this so much more fun for me. I I, I love this. I I I can't give the story anything less than an A plus. So with that, I mean, A plus on one side, B minus on the other. It's obviously got to be, I think, an A for me. Uh, I I don't even think that's going to be a surprise to anyone the way we talked about this. All right, I'm going to give it F's across the board. <laughs> For fantastic, uh, I, I'm I'm very pretty much in agreement with you. I I think the cover, you know, it's solid, but it 
doesn't uh, it just doesn't get it doesn't get the juices flowing. Uh, I'm gonna say a B. It's just you know it's it's solid. It's good. It doesn't give me the awe that I that the story kind of does. Uh, the artwork inside, I also really don't see any problem with it. I think, like I said, it creates that that golden age feel a little bit. It creates the creepy feel with the the aliens. Uh, it's very moody. And, you know, I talked about the pacing of the story, and to some extent, you got to give the artwork credit for that also. Mm-hmm. That's not just a writing thing. So I'm going to say an, I'm going to say an A on the, on the artwork. And story-wise, as I said, it's probably the best paced story that I can think of off the top of my head. And I think it does a great job of melding the Golden Age Superman and the War of the World story without ever, without ever just kind of ruining either of them. So I'm going to go with an A plus on the story as well and give it an A overall. Uh, I guess I'll hop in next. Um, yeah, the covers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's good. And, uh, but you get that one tripod Walker back there, I guess, tripod Bob, he's just not paying attention. He's shooting off in the other direction. He's not even paying attention to Superman. At least the two in the front are looking at him. One of them shooting him. So uh, I, I'm going to give it a B for Bob, for Tripod Bob back there. Um, the the art, I mean, it's so reminiscent in some scenes here and there of, of, of other artists that we know. And I looked up this artist, and I don't think I've got a lot of his uh, his stuff or recognize it. I don't know. Are you guys that familiar with Michael Lark? Not no, terribly. I know that he did. Um, what was the name of the the Batman spinoff series all about the Gotham, Gotham Knights? Or was Gotham it Knights City Gotham Gotham Central. Gotham that was Central. it. Gotham yeah. Central. Yeah, that was it. Hmm. That's yeah, that's probably his biggest claim to fame, uh, comic book wise. I mean, he's done a lot of other comics work, but that was the one that kind of jumped out to me when I was uh, looking at his uh, list of credits. And that was the only one that I was really all that familiar with prior to this project. So I mean, for a grade, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a, a, a for the art and for the story. Other than that one minor <laughs> plain historical nitpick, which would bring it down from an A plus. I'll give it. I'll still give it an A. So it, that that averages out to you know two two A's and a B. I guess that's an A minus. So good book. Enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit differently on the grades this time. Uh, as, uh, rather than start with the the cover or the interior, I'm going to start with actually the story because I think it's the story that really makes this. Uh, I, I'm blown away by this. I think it's top notch. Uh, again, I, I don't think that uh, historically there have been a lot of truly great Elseworld stories. There have been a lot of them that might have had a really good premise. There's a lot of them that were okay in their execution, but there's not a lot of them that really stand out as like, wow, that was great. I think this is a great one. Mm-hmm. Same thing for property mashups. There's a million of them, and not a lot of them are all that great. Most of them kind of suck. This one, I think, is great. I think it does justice to both of the properties. The characters feel the way they're supposed to feel. And there's great homages, but they don't beat you over the head with them. 
And I like that. I like that the Easter eggs are subtle. You either catch them or you don't, but not a lot of attention is called to them. So I love the way uh, that works. I like the pacing of the story. I, I think it's just, it's a really well told uh, done in one that, that does what it needs to do. And it's fun. It's exciting. Uh, it, it's a nice throwback to both of the properties. And again, I think both the properties get, uh, equal time and, and are really treated respectfully in this. So story-wise, I'm going to go straight A+. Plus. I think it's top-notch. I think it's really, really good. Um, where it has its weaknesses for me is really in the art. Uh, I really don't care for the cover. Now, there's nothing wrong with the cover, artistically speaking. It just doesn't necessarily grab me. Um there's just something about it that's just it it looks kind of dull you know what i mean and i don't think it's a dull story i think it's a fantastic story so they needed something a little more grabbing on the cover and the cover to this is just it just doesn't really grab me somehow it should be more exciting than this so the cover i would probably say i think i'm gonna say like a c plus it's just kind of eh, it's it's there but it it doesn't do what i think it needs to do for such a uh, a monumentous occasion as you know the golden age superman versus the classic hg wells war of the worlds i mean that it should just be played up more artistically on the cover and i just don't feel like it is uh likewise the interior art i think it does a good job of capturing the period feel and i like that i like the the muted colors it just kind of it feels like the world that it's supposed to feel like that said it's kind of ugly you know what i mean it, it, it's and it's weird because you know you look at old-timey pictures and everything people weren't particularly attractive and the people in this are not particularly attractive so i guess that's kind of historically accurate but at the same time they're they're just they're they're kind of ugly you know people wise so it, it's something to do with the the faces overall i think the bodies look okay i i think the general layout is okay there's something about the faces that just look a little odd and a little wonky to me but overall uh i do like the the dynamism of it i do like the layout it's just kind of the finished product leaves me a little bit cold so in that respect i i think i'd probably go like a b minus on the r i think there's a lot of room to improve Although, again, uh, I, I really do like the general layout. So maybe if, uh, I don't know, a different inker might have helped. I'm not, I'm not sure where the, the shortcoming is there. Um, but despite the lower grades on both the cover and the art, just because I love this uh, project so much, I'm going to give the overall thing still an A anyway. I, I think this is a top-notch book. Uh, and I would highly recommend it to uh, to anybody that's a fan of either, say, like Golden Age Superman or uh, War of the Worlds or even just a good, uh, you know, alternate history story. Uh, I think they would really enjoy this. So there you go. Good oh, cool. book. I have to admit I am really relieved that you guys enjoyed this because I wasn't sure, again, not being the... Um, experience with the comics that you guys have by any means, I was like, do I like this? Do I, am I really reading a good story or am I, or am I liking a gimmick? Because I don't necessarily know the difference. So I'm really 
one relieved that you guys liked it, and two, had an absolute blast talking about it with you guys. Well, thanks. Sure. That's. I, I think you used a good word, too, that I, I didn't think of, but gimmick. I, I think gimmick is what does sell so many of these property yeah. mashups, and it's the gimmick that, that kind of makes it happen, but then a lot of the companies don't seem to go past the gimmick phase to produce what is actually worth a shit, you know? Yes, right. And this is. Not only is it worth a shit, but it's damn good. So, yeah, it's a bit gimmicky in the aspect of, you know, hey, it's Superman and War of the Worlds, buy it. But beyond that point, it, it's worth it because it's a good story. That just doesn't really happen a lot. A lot mm. of them never get past the gimmick phase, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, yeah, that, that Batman versus Predator example I used a while ago, that's, mm-hmm. that's what that was. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was cool Alfred shot him with a blunderbuss, but other than that, I can't really remember anything about it. Yeah, I, I will agree because there's there's been a lot of them over the years that I have read that just you know it's like damn you know I was really looking forward to this and it's there's not really anything here that's doing um, I'll tell you one that really uh, comes immediately to mind is like Batman Punisher that should have been awesome and they did two of them and they both suck oh really it's like how <laughs> do you how do you make that mashup <laughs> and not make it awesome yeah. and it, neither one of them was worth a damn so yeah there yeah. you go. All right. Well, before we fully wrap up here, we did talk a l- quite a bit about stars and character in the beginning. Why don't you tell everyone that might not have checked out Back to the Biz before listening on the news as feed a little bit more about your show and, and your network for that matter? Joe Network, Scott. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, Paul. You do all the work on the show. Well, I've, I've kind of usurped Back to the Bins from Scott. Bastard. Uh, but scott scott bill and i do back to the bins which is a weekly program in which we basically pick random comics to review and uh, maybe not quite as in depth as we did tonight since we focused all on one book but essentially we do what we did tonight we talk about it we have a little bit of fun and we assign a grade value to it and usually the tangents abound so, but we're part of the bigger Two True Freaks network, which Scott started along with Chris Honeywell, which has a plethora of different series on it, which should fill virtually any geek need that you have. <laughs> uh, and certainly, if you combine that with Neo's as, I think we have it all covered. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, anyone listening probably has heard me mention Two True Freaks before. I, I, I talk about it a lot, and it does. It's got just about anything you can think of and what one thing to hammer home about this show in particular back to the bins is i used to pick and choose subjects that you covered that i at least knew the character or maybe the story i'm well past that now i i i'd say maybe one out of 10 episodes i know the story you're talking about and and i'm saying that as a compliment i don't need to your coverage is phenomenal but even more so your conversation about it by the time you're done i know everything i need to know and had a lot more fun than if i didn't listen to it so if if you don't know the particular episode or subject or or character they're talking about don't let that stop you in fact just pick it up where wherever it is right now and then go backwards and forwards and you're going to enjoy it. If you like what we do on news as you're definitely going to enjoy the rest of the stuff these guys do. And if you're listening on back to the bins right now, why don't you tell us a little about Neo says, okay, well, it's like uh, we had mentioned we have, uh, if it's not on 
True Two Freaks, it's probably on news as our, our anchor <laughs> shows are Star Wars in Character, which we talked about extensively at the beginning of this show, uh, other flagship shows, Catacombs, Halloween Horror Nights. That's, uh, I'm mentioning that now because this is all part of our Halloween coverage, but it's our coverage of the history of that event in Orlando as well as the current event going on. Um, we have a couple other in-character series, Muppets in Character, uh, Indiana Jones in Character. They're not as extensive as the stars and character one but they're still there um we've got a couple movie reviews uh past the popcorn and i hate i I always have to stop myself from listing shows if i'm gonna miss some so i'm actually gonna stop there and just say everything that we do is at neozaz.com and it's it's all pop culture related but it's not necessarily all current pop culture related so if you're not up to date or someone that goes to the movies or watches every tv show we're probably right up your alley because you don't need to know everything that's going on in the pop culture world to enjoy it. And like I said, if it's, if you're liking what you're, you hear on two true freaks, hopefully you'll like what we're doing at news as too, which is, I think why the four of us and the two networks get along so well is because we're very similar in what we like and what we like to talk about in that subject. Absolutely. I, I've always thought that, you know, we, we collaborate very well and, and in so many ways, although there's not really any, um, I don't know what the word would be. You know, there's where there's no hands that are in both of them. If you know what I mean, right, yeah. I I still very much think of us as like sister networks. You know what sure, I mean? Yeah. I, I think yeah. we we complement each other very well. And with all the other comic, uh, or not comic, but uh, all the other podcast networks that are out there you guys have the distinction of being the only one that i'm not pretty much actively like piss on those guys you know it's like (laughs) i i'm you know i i support and encourage you know your your growth and success i think it's awesome you know i i really am a big fan of the network whereas there's there's been so many others it was like oh they didn't want to join two two freaks well piss on those guys (laughs) Oh, cool. I appreciate that. That's a, that's a, that is a, definitely a high compliment to me. One of the, you know, of the I'm network. a big fan. Yes. You know I am. I, <laughs> so what's all almost viral going to do for Halloween? Oh boy. Uh, that, that's, it's a, it's a trick or treat. Either you're going to get a treat that we do an episode or a trick that you fell for the idea that we might actually do an episode. <laughs> well, hey, don't, don't feel bad because, uh, Chris Honeywell and I, I think we only have one episode of Walking Dead Wednesday out this year. So is it really? I, you know, it's funny. I must have just listened to that, and and I, I didn't realize it was on there. And you guys were talking about how you're back, so I didn't realize there's no we're more back. to follow up right now. Oh, <laughs> that was a couple months ago. And yeah, yeah, we're trying. We're gonna try. Oh, I know how it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's the uh, anyone that's listens to. I, know I say this all the time, and I think I've heard you guys say it. I mean, you gotta. It's a hobby first, and you got to have fun while doing it, or else there's no oh, point. Absolutely. That's first and foremost. So it's sometimes you're just not going to get around to it. That's why, I mean, we make time for catacombs and stars and character, and Chris makes time for pass the popcorn. But other than that, everything else is a labor of love. And if you end up not loving it, what's the point of it? So we might go six months, might even go a year without an episode. But that's the only way there's ever going to be another episode is taking a little walk away from it. Yep. <laughs> yep. Jeep, 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 jeep. That's a whole other episode that we could all do a roundtable on. For the love of podcasting. And say that in any tone you want, good or bad. (laughs) For the love of podcasting. All right. Well, I want to thank you guys again for this. I had a blast doing it. Always enjoy talking with you guys, but I really appreciate you taking the this big chunk of your night to talk about this particular one and i'm really glad we all liked it so 
Uh, let me just wrap up here. This has been uh, a big part of our War of the Weeks coverage. So if you're interested in more War of the War, I'm sorry, War of the Worlds week coverage, if you're interested in more about War of the Worlds, there's been a few episodes before this. There's still more to come. So check that out at neozaz.com. Uh, this is also a big part of our Halloween celebration. All that can be found at Neozaz. And while you're online, going to neozaz.com, open up another window and go to twotruefreaks.com and join their Facebook group because just as much is going on on Facebook as they're releasing on their website. This is as big a part of our horror month as it is your War oh, of the Worlds. Oh, that's world. right. That's true. Yes. Yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. I already forgot. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we did mention hey, it in the beginning. Did we not? I hope. I think we did. Speaking of windows and horror, Matt, mm-hmm. make sure you leave your drapes open so I can see with my... Wait, never mind. Damn. <laughs> Speaking of that, did you see Olivia Newton John still has doubts about her missing boyfriend? Why would he? Do- <laughs> it, it wasn't me, I swear. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that later. Well, Paul, Scott, Bill, thank you once again. And thanks to Two True Freaks for their participation in this. And thanks to everyone that listened. And we will see you in our next Halloween slash War of the Worlds week episode. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.